You're listening to the Russian Tuesday podcast. Nobody cared who I was until I moved to Russia. Actually, they still don't care. internet this is the russian tuesday podcast coming at you from moscow that's moscow russia not moscow idaho uh, i'm your host jim aka big bill haywood aka bear force one from russia without bs the blog uh, that's at nobsrussia.com uh, on the first episode of the Russian Tuesday podcast, what I call the pilot episode, I didn't really speak too much about the blog, and if you'll forgive me, I want to do a little bit of uh, self-promotion at the moment. Um, the blog was started about a year and a month ago at this time, and uh, that was uh, the beginning of my eighth year in Russia. And I started it because at that point I had become fed up with the kind of coverage that Russia gets in uh, the English language news or the, the foreign press, basically. It's not just the foreign press. It's also Russia's foreign language press. Things like uh, that satellite channel they have, the thing with the, the kind of similar name. You know, the, the green logo. I, I forget their name. Uh, but there's also, like, Voice of Russia. I think Russia Beyond the Headlines, things like that. And, of course, there are many uh, blogs and podcasts about Russia. And um, I see in all these things, you know, there, there are stereotypes, uh, there are biases, but it goes both ways. Uh, you have the positive, or, you know, the, the overly positive uh, portrayal of Russia as this rising superpower and this, this bastion of moral values against the degenerate West. And it's a land of milk and honey, so if you're an awkward bitter, angry man from, let's say, the U.S., Canada, or U.K., come to Russia and people will really appreciate you, especially girls. And on the other side of the coin, you have the people who act like Russia is this kind of dystopian, nightmarish dictatorship uh, where you have to constantly be looking over your shoulder and people might be following you and the government kills people. Both those views are highly distorted and... I just want people to, to kind of have uh, a realistic view of Russia, whichever side they're on. Uh, I kind of put my own personal views of politics aside uh, on the blog, uh, and I kind of have to take up a different position uh, just to, to show, you know, just to kind of reach out there and say, look, I'm not, I'm not just on my soapbox preaching my solutions to things. I'm trying to argue this within a sort of more mainstream point of view. And that's actually the political analysis and discussion and historical analysis and things like that. That's largely from uh, just years of living here, and it's kind of what the uh, the blog quickly uh, mutated into that. Uh, at first, it was just 
you know, here's something somebody wrote about Russia, and here's why it's bullshit. Uh, you know, here's a stereotype, or you know, this doesn't really happen in Russia. Um, and then you know you don't always get this like stream of material, and I don't want to just be constantly attacking other people's writing. So you know, I start doing my own stuff. Um, and now it's growing into this great media empire uh, in podcast uh, on Facebook. We have a Facebook page, and uh, there's even a YouTube channel where I've just been kind of dicking around, uh, just testing my uh, video production abilities. Nothing really major right now, although uh, podcast episodes are hosted there. Um, anyway, today we have a discussion uh, with Uncle Vanya, one of my co-hosts. We're going to be talking about news out of Ukraine, and uh, as you might have guessed, it's uh, not good news. Uh, it's pretty much never good news at the moment, and I, I always try to find something positive about life in this area. Uh, and there have been some positive developments in my personal life, but I have to be honest, uh, in general, the political, economic situation, uh, it's not good. And I'd rather just tell the ugly truth than a bunch of uh, sweet-sounding lies and just, you know, sugarcoat things. So without further ado, uh, let's go on to that segment right now, the conversation between myself and Uncle Vanya. And I'm here with Uncle Vanya. Good to be here, Jim. Yeah, I uh, I suggested his, his name should be Thomas the Dank Engine, but he didn't go with that. He wanted to appeal to a larger audience, that's correct? I'm more family-friendly, that's how I roll. Ah, uh, family values, yeah. Okay, so uh, we're going to go over some current events today. Well, the most important current event, and you know, I kind of forgot to, to mention this before, the watermelon season is over in, in Russia. No. Oh, man, such a shame. In, in Russia, in about late August to early September, you will see these massive cages of watermelons, and these things are big, green, and literally brimming with fruit. It's almost as if they're trying to escape with how heavy they are. And folks on the street will hawk these watermelons as if they were national treasures. Yes, yeah, so they actually are national treasures of Uzbekistan and Azerbaijan, I think. Uh, well, you see, I'm from now, you're from the northern United States, yes. right? So uh, can you tell me, are you familiar with having things like fruit and vegetables being like out of season and like the price going way up when it's out of season? Generally in a farmer's market, yes, but usually we would go to large supermarkets, and to be honest, I wasn't really familiar where food came from. That's Yeah, because I, I'm from the Southwest, and we don't have any concept of in-season or out-of-season. We have everything all year round, and uh, if you move to a place like Europe or you know Russia, suddenly you're going to come face-to-face -face with the, the concept of in-season and out-of-season foods, and... Uh, it's horrifying. You know, when people are always talking about how great America is and all the stuff like that, um, it's really having being able to get watermelon any time of year, same price, uh, that is truly something to, to appreciate. And, and you, you, many people died to give you that right, to, to buy that watermelon in December. And do you know how they get watermelons uh, in December? Like, you know, big, juicy watermelons in December? I'm unfamiliar, sorry. It's those GMOs. They inject GMOs into the watermelon. What they do is they get the genes, the GMOs, they, they get them from pigs and cows. Because as you notice, beef and pork, they're in season. There's no pork season or beef ah, season. They're that right, so right? So fat watermelons come from fat cattle. Inje well, they inject a watermelon with, the, with two whole GMOs from cow or pig, and then it's good all year round. 
it'll grow. So yeah, so God, God bless GMOs. Okay, so I, I am mourning the end of the, the watermelon season, and you? Uh, I am as well. Fun fact about watermelons in Russia, uh, on the note of violence we were talking about, there is a holiday called VDV Day here, Paratrooper Day. and 2nd of August. Yes, 2nd of August, and in which the Russian paratroopers are venerated as near deities and are allowed to run rampant on the streets. I should say something about that. I've actually known somebody who is in the, the uh, uh, paratroopers here. Um, it's not so much anybody who's been in the VDV, the Airborne Forces. It's anybody who can get a hold of that blue and white striped Chelnashka and a blue beret, which is what they wear. And uh, he's told me uh, that he has encountered many people faking it on 2nd August. And it, it doesn't surprise me because actually uh, in the U.S. Uh, we got millions of secret Navy SEALs running around. You know, these are the guys, they were uh, super secret Navy SEALs in Afghanistan, Iraq, and now they're really out of shape, and they work in, like, Best Buy or something, and, yeah. But they still have their AR-15s. But anyways, the Paratrooper Day in Russia is celebrated by uh, massive orgies of drunken violence. And so, in an effort to appease such violence, two years ago, Mr. Putin instituted a policy, uh, no, I'm sorry, last year, not two years ago, he instituted a policy to give out watermelons on such a day so that they could have free smashing material. I was not aware of this, that that's what they did? They give, they give them watermelons? Yes. Well, yeah. So, I mean, uh, in the U.S. Army, they give you like $40,000 cash bonus, like $50,000 for college and everything, and here you get a watermelon once a year. Yeah. But it is very ripe and very tasty. Oh, they are great. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm not sure it's worth four years, but yeah, definitely uh, uh, the, the watermelons are great. Um, thank you, Uzbekistan, wherever they come from. Uh, yeah, so anyway, um, let's get on with the main topics of the day. Uh, the first topic I want to start with was a, it's about Ukraine. Everything is about Ukraine these days. Nothing is not about Ukraine. And this concerns uh, President Obama's speech at the UN about Russian aggression. So he uh, gave a speech at the UN recently. Let's see if we can get the date here. Uh, the date of this story is, I think it was yesterday, the 24th, September. Um, so he was speaking at the United Nations. And uh, his, uh, his speech, uh, I, we don't have a clip of his speech, uh, so I'm just going to, to read a few bits here. He said, uh, Russian aggression in Europe recalls the days when large nations trampled small ones in pursuit of territorial ambition. And uh, uh, then he went on to say that uh, you know, Russia's actions in Ukraine challenged this post-war order, uh, he said we'll impose a cost on Russia for its aggression. Um, but then he sort of opened the... Uh, he, he did praise Russia for uh, uh, having the ceasefire agreement in Ukraine uh, for their support on that and did kind of leave the door open to sort of a way back. And again, quoting Obama, if Russia takes that path, a path that for stretches of the post-Cold War period resulted in prosperity for the Russian people, then we will lift our sanctions and welcome Russia's role in addressing common challenges. Anyway, Obviously that speech uh, that speech lasted about six hours because of its frequent pausing. 
Obviously, the president is very concerned about the prosperity of the Russian people, which is why he instituted sanctions in the first place. Yes, there. Uh, well, you know, America is always really concerned about other people's uh, prosperity. So the big question here after this um, speech, and you know, people are talking about, is the ceasefire holding? And there have been some allegations that you know it's been broken sometimes by you know from coming from both sides. Uh, and the question is, you know, what's what's going to be the future of these sanctions and everything? And uh, the question is, what's what's uh, the you know what is the Russian government's response going to be? I don't think it's going to be very positive right now. My reason for that is because if you know Russia and how the government works and basically what they've been doing for the past two years, they are very desperate to distract most of the population from the effects of uh, not sanctions but the effects of uh, the economic crisis starting in, uh, for them about starting in uh, 2009 and also uh, just the uh, the flight of the massive flight of capital from this country uh, because you got these guys who are doing everything they can to steal as much as they can from the people they need those people distracted and they're going to do whatever it takes and not think more than five minutes into the future so uh, what, what do you think uh, the response will be? You think um, there'll be a change, or I don't think this I don't think this speech will create any response, quite frankly, because uh, as we have seen, rhetoric is hardly the most effective tool to use. Mm. Well, I think that uh, yeah, I mean the problem is that with, with Russia, they if they want to get Putin to sort of change the path. Right now, Putin is playing a populist card. He is trying to appeal to the babushkas and angsty teenagers of no aim in life. Um, a lot of these, these young people who have nothing else but patriotism. But it doesn't really work out in the long run. Uh, the, the, the countries like the U.S. and many of the European countries can afford to play the long game with Russia. And the only, but the thing is, is that you need to offer Putin a way out. You know, you, you need to be very accommodating and say, look. You, you know you don't have to say anything but you know this isn't going to last and we know this isn't going to last and if you don't want to end up like the Shah of Iran or something like that uh, let's work together but this is this is a major responsibility on the American and the European side uh, they're the ones that have to say look we will accommodate you 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 do what you have to do to transform Russia into a normal democratic you know some kind of functioning democratic state and we will accommodate you. If, if people like Putin and his people don't think that they're going to get anything out of this, which is, which is something they may conclude from what's happened in the last 10 years, then you're not going to see any move from their side. That begs the question, does Russia want to go to what some may say is normal? Well, I mean, it depends on how you define it. A lot of times uh, there's kind of the straw man argument that I see a lot of Russophiles use when you talk about comparing Russia to like a European country or something like that and they say, you know, this nonsense about how, well, Russia doesn't need your consumer goods and we, we don't, you know, we have different values and we're a unique, super unique country. And, and the thing is, first of all, that's nonsense. Uh, the part of it that's nonsense is the part about the consumer values and everything. Uh, Russia, like many developing countries, uh, is very consumerist, extremely consumerist. The brand awareness in this country 
just floored me because I, when I grew up, uh, I didn't even really notice uh, stores like, you know, was it United Colors of Benetton, uh, probably not even pronouncing it correctly, Lacoste, uh, uh, Louis Vuitton. I didn't even know what these things were. And I think there's a lot of people in America who actually don't know. Um, whereas in Russia, the brand brand name imported European, that's, that is very important. So, the word mm-hmm. luxury is mm-hmm. becoming very important in the Russian lexicon as well. In my social media accounts, I have noticed a story floating around in which, I, I would assume he's an oligarch, spent the equivalent of 60,000 US dollars to put on his BMW or Mercedes uh, precious stones. So this thing, this car literally sparkles, and many Russians are talking about that. Yeah, I have seen a car that I, I, I don't think that it was covered in precious stones, but it was obviously uh, say painted, but done up to appear that it was encrusted pimped. in diamonds. Yeah, pimped is the word. Uh, actually, there, there are stories about the different oligarchs in Russia with uh, diamond-encrusted skis that are like 20,000 euros each. Um I, I've personally seen some of the, uh, let's say, features of the kind of you know, the homes that some of these people live in, and everything they have is foreign, and they all send their kids abroad to study. So, if you're thinking that Russia is this country that rejects consumerism and a corporate whatever. Uh, you're wrong. I, I'm horribly sorry. I'm so sorry to ruin your dream. So that's one one thing there is that it is, uh, when you're talking about should Russia be like the other countries, uh, like European countries and things like that, um, it, it, first of all, it's not anti-consumerist. Okay, Saying that it should be, you know, Russia should have a standard of living like a European country or something doesn't mean it's, it's, it's not all about having iPads and things like that. Um, it's about people having access, not only having access to those things, but being able to choose the kind of lifestyle they want. If they want to surround themselves with gadgets and they want to you know, lead some kind of vapid uh, lifestyle that's based on showing off their gadgets, fine. But if they don't, they, you know, that should be an easy thing to do. And unfortunately in Russia, uh, there are huge problems with social mobility, with salaries. Um, you know, the economy was in deep trouble uh, before any kind of sanctions were passed on Russia this year. And that comes from d- directly from the Russian finance ministry. So before you start saying it's some kind of Western propaganda, uh, they actually admit a lot of this stuff in the Russian press. I've seen stuff. I've seen them admit negative stories in the Russian news. That that is the state-run news, by the way, uh, and you know straight from the Ministry of Finance. So when you talk about normal again, uh, it's about you know when we're talking about normal, we're talking about people, for example, being able to start their own businesses without worrying about some bureaucrat uh, demanding bribes, you know, without having to jump through so many hoops that just allows all these bureaucrats at different levels to take their cut. Um, We're talking about accountability for police, for politicians at local levels. We're talking about uh, not having state-run enterprises that are handed out to friends of you know, the ruling political families. There's nothing wrong with, with the major enterprises, nothing wrong with the state involvement. Norway has uh, very profitable companies that are entirely state-run, as far as I know, and Norway has the highest standards of living in the world. But when you have a state-run enterprise, it first of all, it shouldn't be handed over to just some guy who is your friend from judo class. And second, the, the wealth that 
derives from that needs to be it needs to filter down to the people and that just isn't happening right now uh so when we say what should russia be like well it doesn't it need to be and i would say it shouldn't be like the united states with our system uh, if it weren't for Russia, we probably have the worst. <laughs> we probably have the worst democratic wow. system in the industrialized world. Yeah, a ridiculous healthcare system. But Russia should endeavor to be like Finland, Sweden, Norway. It certainly has the resources and the potential to be that way. You know? I'd like to bring our attention back to this article. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, one thing I believe that uh, when Obama says we will impose a cost on Russia for aggression, mm-hmm. he is feeding. He is fueling the flame of the Kremlin. So what the Kremlin will do is they will quote this and they will say, look, Obama is threatening you, Russian people, therefore discrediting discrediting any ideas that are outside of the Kremlin system. Russia is a country that likes to imagine itself as encircled by enemies. And this uh, this gives credence to the idea that we need a strong leader. We need to stick to our traditions because we are the only ones we can trust. And I fear that much, many people in the West are unfamiliar with this, so they unknowingly give them fuel. Mm. Well, to be fair, nobody trusts anybody here. But the thing is, yes, that's very true. A lot of times, and this, is, this has actually been happening since 2000, you know, the different administrations have totally bungled relations with Russia by playing directly into their hands, playing into the hands of the Kremlin. Well, first of all, not accepting the overtures of Putin in his early, uh, you know, the early years of his administration. Um, There were many moves that Putin made towards cooperation with the West. He closed Russian foreign bases. He agreed to that conventional forces in Europe uh, agreement where he pulled back most of his army, uh, regular army forces uh, from the Western European part of Russia. Uh, he even made a proposal to join NATO, uh, or at least talked about it seriously. And this was all snubbed. So the, the uh, what's happened is when they didn't really respond positively to Putin's overtures, things just got worse and worse. And now today you have this situation where, uh, you know, what's, what's the incentive for Putin to, when, when they say we'll impose a cost on you for doing this, you know, we're, we're going to get you for this. Uh, where's the incentive for his side to, to move forward? Because he already tried the whole, you know, the friendly route, and that didn't get anywhere. From his perspective, the U.S. and, well, the West has been breaking a lot of promises they made. We will not expand NATO. We will not take it right up. We will not put NATO forces within uh, 160 miles of St. Petersburg. And so, again, this plays into this whole encirclement thing. So... From a, his, a recent historical perspective, Putin has only been breaking the trust in the last year or so, but he is seeing it as he has been being patient for the last 10 years. Hmm. Well, just to be fair, there's this uh, story, this kind of myth going around that said that, you know, the the West, uh, America's president, I think they meant Bush Sr., uh, it might have been Reagan or Bush Sr., uh, supposedly told Gorbachev that NATO, or maybe they told they told Yeltsin that NATO would not expand an inch after, uh, at, you know, after the fall. Uh, the thing is that this was never any kind of binding treaty or anything like that. Uh, and countries, you know, there were countries that actually wanted to join NATO, and they did. Uh, countries such as Poland, 
Um, and that particular president, you know, you didn't really have much uh, you know, control over that. You can't, uh, you can't pretend like some kind of uh, oral assurance like that is some kind of binding treaty. And if you want to talk about binding treaties, there's a Budapest agreement where Russia agreed to recognize U Ukraine's borders. Um, you know, in return for Ukraine giving up their nuclear weapons, which uh, hilariously they're talking about getting U <laughs> nuclear weapons yeah, again. Nuclear <laughs> yeah, um, no, sorry. <laughs> no, Poroshenko, you're not going to get any uh, nuclear weapons. Um, but yeah, the, the thing is, is that's the way the uh, propaganda kind of works here is that uh, the U.S. leaders um, uh, and a lot of the people in the media and the pundits they play right into the Kremlin's hands, where so you could, you know, they have pundits here say they they say to the people, look, you see, it doesn't matter what our government's like, it doesn't matter what we do, they always want to get us. We're, they're just yes. anti-Russian. Yes. Yeah, and and it, it's a shame. And and actually, this is a good segue to our next story um, because there is uh, in recent, uh, I'd say this year, I become aware of uh, the Mark Adamanis, who is a journalist and. He is actually a good example of, of the alternative, you know, what, what we could have in journalism and in discussions about Russia, uh, what we could have instead of what we've had in the past, the sensationalism and everything like that, because he is extremely objective. He has a very data-driven approach, and I know I had read a lot of articles of his in my undergrad education, and he focuses a lot on demographics and things that are very concrete yeah and there's also a lot of you know a lot of stuff here is based on rumor and if you think that the the opposition is somehow more honest uh you know than than the kremlin uh, you have to understand it many times they do use the same tactics and also the opposition there is no actual opposition per se so if you're talking about navalny like as far as i'm concerned navalny's a sack of shit okay so you have to take uh, a lot of what his side says with a grain of salt. And that's why, like, a Westerner, someone like Adam Manus, who comes in there and just kind of looks at the facts, things that are checkable. And he's a, I, actually, uh, I, I actually took some flack for sort of praising him on my blog in the past uh, because I don't like his, his stance on Syria. He had a poor stance on Syria. But you know what? We're, I, I don't. I don't use my blog just to feature people who agree a hundred percent with me. Uh, you know, we can disagree on that. I think the important thing is that on Russia and this Ukrainian uh, issue, he has uh, he has taken a very objective line. And it recently, the recent article I, I saw of his is called "Ukrainians Still Don't Want to Join NATO," and uh, this is on Forbes and actually mentions uh, Navalny. But this was about different polls and the data that they get from polls in Ukraine and from different parts of Ukraine, uh, including parts of Ukraine that they're calling Novorossiya. And it's interesting what you see from these polls. Uh, what these found is that, first of all, th there's consistent evidence that uh, never has there, there hasn't been any kind of majority of people who actually, at least in eastern Ukraine, that includes the Donbass, uh, there hasn't been a majority of people who want to join Russia. Make no mistake, these people are very much against the government in Kiev. 
but these people do not want to be in Russia. Every poll shows this. At the same time, they also don't want to be in NATO. And uh, people in Kharkov and Odessa, also anti-government places there, also do not want to be part of Russia. This is what uh, the polls show. And if we look, I mean, this is kind of the, the opposite of, this is the opposite of what, uh, you know, the Kiev government um, has been saying, and, the, and, and Moscow and the Kremlin. Uh, the idea, you know, in, in Kiev, they're trying to say that Ukraine is united now, and, and that's nonsense because there are uh, different, you know, Ukrainians with different opinions about what that means. And uh, those people in, in uh, Kharkov, in Odessa, in, uh, in the Donbass, you know, they have a different idea of uh, what Ukraine should be, and it doesn't mean part of Russia. Uh, it just means they, they don't want to listen to that Western Ukrainian crap about Bandera being a hero and all that nonsense. And at the same time, uh, of course, the Kremlin is trying to say that all these people want to be part of Russia. Or they're, they're afraid of the fascist uh, killers coming from Kiev. Uh, and the polls don't really bear that out either. I would like to also say that the word fascist is thrown around like a sack of potatoes. Oh, yeah. I mean... Uh, by definition, there are plenty of fascists to go around on both sides of this. And I'm, you know, in the case of Russia, uh, Russia has kind of a strange uh, political spectrum now where you have basically, you have like, this is what the Russian political spectrum is. You have far right, and then you have extreme right, and then maybe like just to the right of that, you have like like ten Hitlers, okay, like like the equivalent of ten Hitlers. Okay. Recently, one uh, one politician called for the reinstation of the Tsar, Mr. Zhirinovsky. Oh yes, yeah, Zhirinovsky. No, he wanted. Uh, I believe this time he said that uh, the uh, Putin should be made uh, supreme commander, and I found that funny because see, Zhirinovsky is supposed to be theoretically he is he is supposed to be an opposition candidate. Uh, he, he is a person who, in presidential elections, runs against Vladimir Putin. Okay, so I mean, could you imagine like Mitt Romney saying that Obama should be made the <laughs> supreme commander and never have to be elected again? I mean, this is uh, this is insane. As bad as bad as our two-party system is in the U.S., it is competitive. You cannot say it's not competitive because they go crazy every year. Uh, every election year, I should say, and nobody suggests that, you know, well, uh, we have a war going on, so uh, even though I'm a Republican, I think that Obama should be made supreme commander for life. All, you know? all power to the troops. Yes. Support the troops. Don't forget. Yeah, yeah. And, and coming back to that, uh, you know, about fascism, um, in, in Russia, like I said, it's you have far right and then you have extreme right. You don't really have a left, and so what that means is even people, you know, they, they can't really get rid of the whole Soviet legacy here. We could do an entire show on why they don't just chuck the entire Soviet legacy in the imagery. Uh, it's mostly political convenience. It has nothing to do with actual... It has nothing to do with the Kremlin having any sort of socialist ideology. Yeah, so uh, you, know, you have the, the, this kind of uh, political system on the Russian side where, yes, you'll see guys with the imperial flag and then they have a Soviet flag. And the thing is, they're not fooling me, though. Uh, when I listen to their politics, these are far right-wing people, and they are no different. They are no different in any significant way from the hardcore Ukrainian nationalists. What I believe is that the root of a lot of these right-wing politicians is that not that they are rooted in ideology, but that they simply are, I don't want to say opportunists, because that makes them sound more clever than they are, but perhaps they just 
yearn for the glory days. So they will grab onto whatever symbol that they think can attract the most people to this idea of a great Russian power that they can grab. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's often uh, like I said, they attract a lot of teenagers who you see in, in Russia, um, especially if you don't live in Moscow or the region, you know, if you don't have that way to climb the ladder, and a lot of people, are, fewer and fewer people are going to have that very soon. Your life can be very aimless. There are cities in Russia and you know towns, but also small cities where everything revolves around maybe one factory or a couple factories or something like that and you just don't have shit to do you either get out of there or uh, you, you end up in prison or something i mean they, they can be very hopeless places and those people uh have uh they, they are targets for nationalist propaganda and the same in ukraine as well it's the same thing it's it basically the, the thing about nationalism, and I know this is probably going to piss a lot of people off, and frankly, I don't give a shit. Nationalism is appealing because it's like a club that you can join, and it's great to be part of the club, but you don't actually have to accomplish anything. All you have to do is be born into that particular group. And I, I give you an example. Like, uh, uh, Uncle Vanya, you are a musician, right? Yes. Yeah. And uh, you play saxophone and other instruments too, right? Yes. Right, okay. Now, if, uh, if you want to start a musician's club or something, uh, well, I can't join that because I, I can't read music and can't play it. Uh, I guess I could learn, you know, but that would take a lot of hard work. Work. Yeah, work. work. Effort. Oh, no, right? But if, uh, for example, I've got kinds of, I've got some, uh, let's say, you know, Slavic heritage or something, I could join a group that's all about having Slavic heritage. You know? Everybody likes and, to feel like they belong. But I feel like a lot of this this movement is just kind of celebrating the fact that you are alive and treating that as if you did something. So it's false representation. Yeah, well, the thing is you're born into the group. You didn't have to do anything. You didn't have to earn it, right? And the problem is, and, and I know there's some people out here, if they're listening to this and they're in this kind of ideology, they're probably gnashing their teeth right now and they're really angry. But let me ask you this. If you have ever really studied these groups, observed these kinds of groups, out, it doesn't matter. It, it could be nationalists in Europe. It could be... Uh, you know, some kind of, um, I don't know, neo-Nazi group or something like that. One thing you'll notice is they tend to attract a lot of dumb people, I mean, incredibly stupid people, dishonest people, uh, crazy people, people with uh, horrible criminal backgrounds, uh, perverts, pedophiles, you name it. Outsiders. Um, oh, yeah, I mean, that, that's, you know, that's what they attract, and... And I'm sure some of these people wonder, gee, why do we get, you know, we are the elite of Russia, right? We are the elite, of the saviors of Russia, right? We deserve why, this. Why do we get so many pedophiles and perverts coming into this group? Well, it's very simple, because the only thing you have to do to join the group is be Russian. And that's not a difficult thing to do if you live in Russia. There's like 140 million people figure that out. And know? they're all pretty good at breathing, too. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, and, and, and not to beat up on, on the Russians, it's the same thing with Ukraine. And, and Ukraine really also, some people in Ukraine certainly made their own bed and, and opened the door to this, uh, you know, what has happened uh, between them and Russia. This should have been predictable. And that actually segues into the next thing I want to talk about. Um, and I, one, you know, one last thing I'd like to say is yeah. a, a quote that I read that says, Nationalism is a sign of a country's weakness, not its strength. Yeah, that's actually a good point. Um, I mean, how, how what would be your interpretation of that if you wanted to explain it? Because I've got my. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, for example, if I'm one country, could 
say, produce a lot of cars and say, we are good because we make a lot of cars. One country could say, we are good because we have a lot of music. One country doesn't have really much that they can give to the rest of the world, so they just say, we are good because we say we are good. Ha-ha! <laughs> yeah, that, that basically is it. It's, it's funny, when you look at countries which are very rich and have high standards of living, um, they don't talk about their traditions. It doesn't mean they don't have them. I mean, if you go to Norway, uh, again, highest standards of living in the world, look it up. They have traditions. They even have problems. You know, there's also, I, I've read uh, expat blogs about Norway, and they say, look, don't, don't just look at the standard of living and think you should come here and declare asylum, and, and, and you know, it's going to be wonderful for you. Right. We're not trying mm-hmm. to make it out to be a sort of heaven on earth. Yeah, it, it has its, its issues, right? But what they'll say is, is, is what, you, what you don't – they have their traditions, and they have their little problems and their mentalities, and, and, and – uh, and, and contrary to what certain people, um, certain Russophile Americans have said in the past, uh, no, the West doesn't try to make all these countries the same. If you think that the United States and Canada, it, there's no significant cultural or, or mental difference between the United States, Canada, Germany, France, the United Kingdom, Italy, if you think there's no real difference in culture there, they've all been like, you know, subsumed by the liberal consumerist culture. Yeah, McDonald's and everything. I'm sorry, you're an idiot. And clearly you need to travel more uh, because there is a huge difference. I've traveled uh, throughout many countries in Europe and at no point did I get confused about where I am. I could notice the difference between Austria and Germany quite obviously. Same thing with Poland and the Czech Republic and Ukraine and, and even between Russia and Ukraine and things like that. Uh, the whole thing with Scotland uh, just recently, the, the referendum. Part of the reason you know, why there was an uh, independence movement is because um, there's kind of a, uh, from what I've heard from the UK people I uh, know, uh, there's kind of a, a difference in mentality. Uh, Scotland is very left-wing, and it's you know it's a, its own uh, autonomous parliament or whatever. And England is kind of going, or you know, the national parliament's kind of going in a, in a rightward direction. And so, you know, no countries are not the same. Uh, but what you will notice is again, all these countries like Germany, Denmark, uh, Belgium, whatever. Um, when they say, you know, when you say, what what have you accomplished? You know, Germany can say, look, we got we got destroyed. <laughs> we we got our asses handed to us, and then we got split into two, and then we got reunited again. And we had, to, but by the 1970s, West Germany was again an economic competitor with the U.S., and they actually had a bit of an edge on the U.S. Same with Japan; um, they had an edge against the U.S. Um, mainly because of, as far as I understand, they were a bit more efficient. Their factories are more efficient. Everybody feared Japan, and I think it was the 80s and the 90s. Like. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I do remember that a lot. Uh, the anti-Japanese sentiment of the '80s and '90s, um, and they were just they were just uh, you know busting they a grape. They had nukes and, dropped on them too. Yeah, they got nuked and starved and everything, and they just come back and, and kick ass. And and by the way, traditions in Japan are a big deal. Uh, it, it has you know tradition plays a big role in their society, but they're also very interested in other cultures, especially American culture. And all the people I know have been to Japan or things I read about Japan. Uh, you know, they have their own kind of interpretation of American culture, um, but it's it's there. And um, nobody says that Japan doesn't have its own culture. You know, McDonald's took over Japan or something. That would be insane 
to say that. But Japan doesn't always like lecture the world about you know our traditions and traditions and we yeah if we because again you know when you don't have anything that's that's what you go for is like well we're really proud and we have our you know our our traditions and everything. It has been a, a, a sort of re- recurring theme in Russian history because they are the only ones who officially adopt orthodoxy. There's this uh, I know there's this repeated theme of. We are the third Rome. We are the last bastion of, you know, uh, hope and, mm, I don't know how, how you want to say this, but, like, of goodness, and the rest are g- degenerates. Yeah, yeah, there's a, that actually, it's funny, because that, that belief has often had, um, that belief has often had uh, adherents uh, who are Westerners, uh, especially in the early, around the, I think it was around the end of um, end of the First World War. It was kind of a um, sort of the beginning of proto-fascism. A lot of early fascists uh, kind of had this admiration uh, for proto-fascists, had this admiration for the Russian Empire because it was absolutist. Um, and there was this idea that the West is becoming decadent, and soon it will collapse, but Russia will save Western civilization. Does that sound familiar? Uh, I can't say I'm familiar with it, but I do know that there, that's, a, that's something I've, I've, I've Yeah, so heard. think about that for a second. The, the things they are saying now about how you know, the West is going to collapse from its decadence and Russia will rise and save Western civilization, they're saying that now, and people are saying that over 100 years ago. I'm thinking they might be... A little bit off. Um, maybe their calculation isn't working out too yeah, well, is like, it? Like that that preacher guy who said, "Oh, the rapture! Yeah. The rapture is coming! It's a coming!" Yeah. By the way, did you know that's actually happened twice in history? Really? Uh, same thing happened. Uh, the guy I don't remember. Uh, Harold Camping, I think, was the recent guy. Uh, Twenty eleven predicted the rapture would be, I think, May twenty first or something. Rapture didn't come. He said he miscalculated. Said it would be in October, and of course it didn't come. Now he was a he had some relation to I think Seventh Day Adventist or um, yeah. It, well, the thing is uh, the mis- the thing that he predicted and his mistake. The same thing happened to another guy about a hundred years ago. I think it was nineteen eleven. Same thing happened. He predicted it in May, based on the same scripture. Missed it. Said it was in October. Said he miscalculated. Okay, so this is another. This is a good. This is a good uh, analogy, I think, where you have uh, this person who make, making a prediction, and then it just it's not coming true. And uh, another thing about nationalism here, I just got this story yesterday, and this concerns Ukraine. A fellow named Vasil Cherpanin uh, was beaten by some uh, paramilitary thugs, as they say. Uh, he's a head of something called Ukrainian Political Critique, and he was attacked near the university uh, he works at uh, in Kiev. And he is actually a, uh, I believe he's a Maidan supporter. He was working at Yevromaidan as a lecturer. Uh, he's actually organized events with uh, Timothy Snyder. Uh, you know, do you know Timothy Snyder? I'm unfamiliar. He, yeah, he wrote uh, this fairy tale version of Yevromaidan, where basically anything you heard about fascists or far right wing thugs was just a bunch of Russian propaganda. And uh, what really happened on Maidan is everybody, at one time, they got in like rows and they all bent over and dropped their pants and started shitting rainbows of love. And the power of love and and wishes for democracy 
drove uh, Yanukovych uh, out of power. Uh, but that's what drove him out of power. All these okay. diverse people coming together and, and just, you know, and certainly had nothing to do at all with nationalism. So just ignore all those UPA flags or the fact that the Maidan movement had this slogan that was used by the organization of Ukrainian nationalists, which was a fascist party in the 30s. Just, you know, no, no. Timothy Snyder says if, if you question that, then you're a pro-Putin uh, you're a real fascist. That's where the real fascists are. And he, I think Snyder, Snyder is probably one of the pioneers of the, the fascist negation theory. This is where the presence of fascists in another country, like a rival country, cancels out. The pre- like if you find a fascist in Russia, it makes the ones in Ukraine disappear. So that's, that's the kind of you know, mentality we're dealing with here. So this guy, Cherpanin, I'm pointing all this out to say this guy is in no way a supporter of uh, the Donbass rebels or anything. He's not a supporter of uh, the Kremlin. Uh, this guy is a participant in Maidan. He was beaten up by nationalist thugs who accused him of being a separatist. That means being associated with those people in the Donbass, uh, the rebels specifically. And they also called him a communist. And... I would say the tragedy here, uh, I, I, w- I would have preferred Snyder to be the one <laughs> to have, uh, and, and I'm not saying, let me make something absolutely clear. I'm not saying that I think he should be beaten for his beliefs. I'm certainly not saying that. But, you know, when you're trying to say, you're trying to apologize for a movement and, and deny that there is this involvement of nationalists in it, uh, I think it's kind of poetic justice if you end up... Accountability. Yeah, it's it's poetic justice if you end up getting attacked by these people um i've actually said the same thing to some left american leftists uh who are fans of the donetsk uh, people's republic um i said you know hey pack your bag and go there and tell them about your your internationalist left-wing politics and you know you'll find out real quickly what that's about and and you'll find out that you know all those times they fly soviet flags it's just it's a trick and it's the same thing with maidan um we need. We can't forget that. Yes, uh, radical nationalism was an element in that. It was said that they were the ones mm-hmm. who broke the ceasefire agreed between the Maidan movement and Yanukovych's government. Mm-hmm. As far as I know, I'm not uh, familiar with the exact chronology uh, chronology of events there. Uh, but yes, they continued fighting in spite of an agreement to have early elections and everything like that. And the truth is, a lot of Maidan supporters, while and this is from personal experience with them, uh, while they are not radical nationalists themselves, or they never join groups like Pravi Sector, or they're not fans of Svoboda, the, the Nationalist Party, um, many of them make apologies, uh, or I should say many of them make, uh, engage in apologetics for those groups. They call them heroes. They tacitly accept a lot of their mythology. And that is where uh, that, that obviously it didn't work out too well for Ukraine. Uh. Yeah, uh, because the thing is, is, believe me, I guarantee you if those people on Maidan, who many of them had righteous, and some of them I think were a bit naive about the European Union and this association agreement saving right. them, but I do believe that if they had, uh, you know, if they had told those nationalists, look, fuck off, okay, every single time you people have influence in Ukrainian affairs, it doesn't work out well for Ukraine, so we're going to try something new and you know this is we, we are uh, this is going to be a very different movement this time. Uh, if they had done that, 
I have no doubt that they would have won more support in the Donbass and even probably in the Crimea. And, and Putin would not have been able to pull what he did in the Crimea or, you know, what he was doing in the Donbass because there'd just be nobody to rely on for local support. And if anybody out there doubts this, if any Maidan supporters are going to object to this, keep in mind that you're the same people quoting those polls, like the polls we talked about earlier, saying that people in the Donbass, in, in you know, Kharkov, Odessa, these people don't want to be part of Russia. Okay, That's the thing. They don't like your Maidan movement. They don't, they don't want to be a part of Russia. And I believe that. I believe that's true. So what I'm saying is, why... Did you have to let those idiots from Pravi Sector and Svoboda, why do you give them another chance? If you want to be better than Russia, the first thing you could do is just accept the fact that Ukraine is a multi-ethnic country of you know, Russian-speaking people, uh, you know, Ukrainian-speaking people, people, a lot of people speak uh, sort of in between, uh, Crimean Tatars. And stop trying to mess with people's language and stuff like that, and just say, "Look, this is Ukraine is for everybody that is here, and that's it." You can't make any cool clubs when you do that. Oh yeah, that's that's right. You don't get to, you don't get to feel special for who you you know just for being born into a certain group. And so, what what's the fun in that? So much much better to just destroy your own capital city and provoke a war with a much larger power. And, and I'm not making excuses for Russia, but come on. If you have a little, you know, a little skinny guy goes into a bar and starts talking shit to some hell's angel, <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, it's the hell's angel's fault for stabbing the guy twenty-three times with an improvised knife. But if we're honest, um, yeah, he yeah. kind of had it coming. You Don't know? poke the bear. Yes, uh, yeah. If if you're gonna, you know, and again, is I'm not even saying that they didn't need to make it about you know Russia versus Ukraine. There there are ways you could present that struggle between you know there's a Russian system which is quite corrupt and uh, uh, it doesn't really allow for change, and then there's a Ukrainian system which, uh, as it is now, it is corrupt, but at least you can change it. And uh, that's one way they could have uh, characterized this. But no, they decided to take the easy way out and hook up with football hooligans and nationalists and things like that. And look what happened. Because it turns out Russia has more of those assholes than you. you know? yeah, <laughs> so, really. you know, they, they have, a, uh, they, they have a, a bigger supply of dickheads. And you wanted to have a dickhead fight with them, so they're gonna wa- they're gonna win the war of dickhead attrition. It's really sad to see how kind of chest puffing and machoery is accepted as acceptable discourse, especially since violence is so easily had here. Well, it's kind of funny because you know you say that it is very true, but the thing is, a lot of what you actually see people do is quite cowardly. You know, a lot of the violence is. A bunch of guys getting together and jumping somebody. It's it's not you see because I mean, Russians act very rude to each other like in public, and you rarely see anything that looks like a public fight's going to start when it's between two guys. Yeah, that's two. Common, yeah. common scene in bars. Two guys will just like two guys will say you're disrespecting me. No, you're disrespecting me, and then they'll kind of be at a standoff for a while, and they say, you know what, this isn't worth it. Yeah, I would say maybe that's good for them because I think one good thing about Russia is sometimes people, they don't get so damn upset about little things sometimes. That that can be a very good thing. But on the other hand, what I see is that you don't see a lot of these guys. You see these guys acting disrespectful to each other sometimes, but not really, you know, standing up to each other. 
whereas what you do see very often what you read about is like large groups of guys jumping somebody and sometimes uh as it happened recently to a program i think a program director of doge tv which is uh this independent channel that the kremlin hates uh this, this is a woman a quite young woman in her 20s and she was beaten up by unknown assailants outside her house those are some brave guys aren't they yeah really real really, brave guys really yeah. uh well representing the imperialist tradition yes uh, <clears throat> the bravery yeah so anything else to add today uh, i think well i think i think what we learned today from all this is that ukraine is fucked up and russia's fucked up well i think <laughs> i think a lot of this i think a lot of the uh, attitudes of people and why they are being driven to hate their their former brother nation because remember what was it not even a year ago it was like ukraine russia not too big a difference is that a lot of this difference has been constructed by the elites as a way to legitimize their actions they're saying now they're saying oh the people in kiev the ukrainians these these fascists that we ukraine has become a dirty word blue and yellow have become dirty colors here whereas just a scant year ago they were just like hey you know it's our buddy well, it's funny because, yeah, they now uh, now I see Russians talking about Western Ukraine and Western Ukrainians and you know blaming this on Western Ukrainians. And aside from the fact that, and this, this is uh, quite disturbing, but in, in, there's a trend even before Maidan that showed that uh, many of the nationalists are not from Western Ukraine as they traditionally were in the past, even as, as uh, I think in, in the Orange Revolution, uh, you know, most of these people were Western Ukrainian from uh, Halichina. Um, but now they're not. But the funny thing is, now when they talk about Western Ukraine, you see people divide Ukraine, and they divide it like on the Dnieper River and, and Kiev. Cities like Kiev, I think like Zhytomyr, uh, maybe Cherkasy, they're being listed as Western Ukraine. That's all Western. And I'm like, when, when was that Western Ukraine? That has not historically been considered Western Ukraine. And by doing that, you're actually saying to the Maidan people, like, well, you won, because, I mean, they gained ground, right? So... Uh, yeah, even in even their nationalist rhetoric is essentially defeatist, and uh, it's it's just the whole. But we have the whole thing is a clusterfuck, basically a giant gaggle fuck. Um, yeah, we we can we can throw a lot of different words at there, but I would say it is messy to say the least. Yeah. And I think it's a pro- it's a general problem of Eastern Europe after the fall of socialism is that you don't really have any kind of strong left. You just have right-wing demagogic assholes who usually profit from manipulating public opinion this way or that way. You do have some people, uh, in, in many countries, Russia included, you do have these like phony communist parties, and like I said, they kind of go after the babushkas and stuff like that, uh, but their ideology is, is it's, uh, their actual ideology is very right-wing and not really uh, uh, socialist in any way, and it's just, a, it's the same thing. It's uh, you have, you know, they know that there's a demographic out there that is attracted to the hammer and sickle, as though it were like a Coca-Cola brand, you know, trademark or something, and that'll get you votes. And in the case of Russia, it'll make it look like you have a competitive political system. So I guess my yeah. last words on this is why I think a lot of this violence is continuing is just because frustrated um, either young men or older men who have a lack of skills that are useful in this day and age, so they say. Well, you know, I can fight, I guess, and so they try to prove themselves that way, and I think that's the most dangerous thing, is that we still live in this world where, like, yeah, go out and fight with your rifle, you know, fight for what's right and everything, 
and I think that's a really destructive ideology. Yeah, there is this sentiment that uh, you don't learn new things so you can be useful. Don't learn how the world works. Don't understand economics. Just follow some lead, some some guy with a long ass beard. If if you live in Russia, he's got to have a long ass beard. Or just some uh, you know, in the case of Ukraine, somebody who uh, wears one of those embroidered shirts because that makes you a man of the people. And um, yeah, that's all you got to do is just and, and and hate hate the other side. You know, it's it's like it's like a football yeah. rivalry. Just yeah. just hate the other side, and and you don't even. And the thing about these these countries is that they they don't even have any real definition. I mean, you know, they talk about their traditions and everything, defending their culture, but their whole culture revolves around not being something else. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, like Ru- Russia's whole traditions and everything. Uh, first of all, most of it's nonsense. I mean, you know, when they talk about their traditional values, like Ru- just give you one example, Russia's abortion rate is still two, maybe three times the rate of all these uh, degenerate European countries that are run by sluts. Yeah, that's just one example off the top of my head right there, and you can check on that if you want. But when they really talk about their traditions, there are no traditions. I mean, you know, the, the, the traditions they, they, they claim to be defending is just basically not being the West. The best, that's the yeah. best they can put forward. We don't have any gay parades. <laughs> okay, I mean, as far, I, I've never seen a gay parade in any European country. I've lived in Europe for over half a year at one point. Um, and uh, as far as I'm concerned, you could say they don't have gay pride parades because I, I haven't seen any, you know. Um, I know they're there, but the thing is, uh, if, if that's all you got to, to offer, and I know we were talking about this earlier, but that, that's the best you can do is that, well, we both have gay pride parades. Well, you know what? Uh, neither does Uganda. Um, is that is that is that what you're shooting for? Is right. that, you know, <laughs> aim, I, aim high, right? <laughs> I think that there's a certain irony in that um, – Russian in, in Russian internal politics, people always like to criticize the opposition that they don't construct anything, they just merely attack the established order or at- attack the others. Yeah. And on the international stage, Russia isn't seen as so much as constructive as just like mm, somebody vying for attention, much as an opposition. Well, yeah, it, we're, we're just simply anti-everything. And sometimes, yeah, uh, the criticism uh, that they made about the U.S. Uh, with Libya, you know, NATO and Libya and Syria and things like that, they had some valid points there and everything, but they, they, that's not the basis. That can't be the basis for having, a, like, any kind of alternative. Because it's dependent on the actions of another. Right. All you're doing is you're just criticizing someone else and you're just not being them and you're defining yourself by what you're not. And this doesn't contribute anything to the world and when and the same thing by the way with the ukrainian nationalists it's just the same thing they they define themselves by how not russian they are so that's why they're always uh so anal retentive about the language that they should speak and everything like that it's all about not being a moscow which is a muscovite russian and actually this is pretty common throughout eastern europe although i want to say that I'm happy to say that I've seen in other parts of Eastern Europe that used to have a huge problem with this, like the Balkans, it's really starting to move on. I mean, Serbia is joining the European Union. That's a done deal. They have been trading with Croatia for a long time. They've been major trade partners. Um, A lot of people in the Balkans, uh, yes, I'm sure they still have their uh, uh, big share of nationalist assholes. But though those people exist, there's most of these people in the Balkans are moving on. You know, a lot of uh, people, Serbs, Bosnian Muslims, Croatians, uh, I think they're just starting to say, you know what, 
what's the point anymore? How 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 long are we going to say, you know, they did this to us four decades ago and now right. we got to get them back? And how, how long are we going to do that before we just realize this is pointless and let's grow up? And that's the thing about Russia and Ukraine is that they both need to grow up. Uh, they're both acting like children. And, yeah. and I'm not going to say that what Russia does uh, somehow uh, cancels out what happens on the Ukrainian side. I don't buy into this ridiculous American belief that, you know, the underdog is always right. right. I mean, my, my sympathy is with Ukraine as a country and with the Ukrainian people, at least a large part of the Ukrainian people, but there, that nationalist movement there that's been with Ukraine since the early 20th century, that particular strain uh, is really a cancer. And, and I think really whichever country, Russia or Ukraine, whichever country grows up faster and says, you know what, screw this, this isn't working, it hasn't worked in 23 years, that's going to be a successful country. Absolutely. It doesn't matter whether it's Russia or Ukraine. It doesn't matter if Putin is behind this uh, movement, this change, or if it's somebody in Ukraine who does it in there. Whoever says, you know what, let's, let's, grow, let's grow up and let's stop believing in magic and let, let's uh, move on, that country is going to succeed. And the country that wants to live in the past, whether it's the glorious Russian Empire uh, with the Donetsk Purple's Republic, uh, or, you know, this Ukrainian hetmanate or whatever, like, that's the country that's going to lose. You're going to be the loser. Yes, the most successful countries look forward, not look back. Mm-hmm. They don't look back. Yeah. <laughs> All right. All right, so, uh, Uncle Vanya, uh, thanks for being on the show today. My pleasure. Yeah, and uh, be, be sure to uh, pick up a watermelon while you still can. Yeah, I'll, 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 I'll pick up two today. Actually. Yeah, just one under each arm. All right, but uh, you're not taking my watermelon though, because no. like, as I said, my I buy a really big watermelon because my wife will just eat this one like thin slice, and then I just make sure she's not going to have any more. I say, you gonna have any more? She says no, and then I just I just slaughter the rest of that. Yeah, that I've gone to town on many a watermelon here, and it's glorious. Oh yeah, I just uh, I, I think how, how fast do you think you can get through a watermelon? Oh, I I pay I pace myself at a rate of about a. Uh, a kilo every five to t- five to seven minutes. Yeah, and by the way, it's with seeds. We don't have any of that seedless crap here. No, this, is the re- this is the real world. We're living in. We're living. Yeah, this is. We're living hard. This is this is hard regime. <laughs> <laughs> right? Okay. Well, you have a good day there, and go you pick up well. those watermelons. All right. Take All right. Care. Okay. So that was the show, and uh, just a little epilogue for you. Uh, you might be wondering, what happened to that watermelon? Was it good? Was it bad? What's the deal? Uh, I can assure you that watermelon I was talking about in the episode was absolutely delicious. One of the best watermelons I've had this season. Anyway, uh, just a little footnotes about the music today. We came in with the classic Caucasian hit from Idemir Mugu called Chornia Glaza, uh, which means black eyes, as in the eye color is black, not that the, you know, the person he's singing about has been punched in both eyes. And we're going out with the worst song in the world sung by some Russian girl. And so that's the end of today's show, and I hope to catch you next time on the next Russian Tuesday podcast.
Yeah.